0: Last month, Opportunity DB hosted a live webinar highlighting the new Opportunity Zone reform legislation and called on our listeners and viewers to help advocate for its passage in Congress. What follows today is the audio version of this webinar titled How to Advocate for Opportunity Zone Improvements. To view the panel in video format and to learn more about the panelists, check out the show notes page for today's episode. You can find the show notes at OpportunityDB.com podcast and look for the episode titled how to Advocate for Opportunity Zone Improvements. Finally, to read and sign our advocacy letter to congressional leadership, please visit opportunitydb.com letter. Enjoy. Welcome to today's webinar, How to Advocate for Opportunity Zone Improvements. And today you're going to learn how you can show your support for the extension and enhancement of the Opportunity Zones policy to congressional leadership. What we've done is we've drafted a letter that we're going to ask you to sign your name to. But before we get to that, I want to introduce our panelists today and then get a breakdown of how the new bill would improve the Opportunity Zone policy exactly. I'm Jimmy Atkinson, founder of Opportunity DB and host of the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm co-hosting today's webinar with Chris Cooley of OzWorks Group. And joining us as guest panelists today are Catherine Lyons, Director of Policy and Coalitions at the Economic Innovations Group, and Rachel Riley, of ACEs and Archers. So I'm going to turn it over to Catherine and Rachel to get get us going today uh, before we kind of dive into our advocacy efforts and before we hear from our other guests today who are going to highlight some really impactful stories of community-driven Opportunity Zone projects and the success they've had, let's step back and get get your take on what this Opportunity Zone reform bill is exactly. Why it was introduced, why it's necessary, and why most Opportunity Zone stakeholders that I've spoken with are behind it. So uh, Catherine and Rachel, I'm going to turn it over to you now. Can you paint us a picture of where we're at with the legislative efforts and what this reform bill does exactly?
1: Yes, absolutely, and thanks again for having me um, as part of this webinar. Uh, So on April 7th, uh, Senators Booker and Scott led um, a coalition of uh, bipartisan uh, co-sponsors in the Senate. Representatives Kind and Kelly uh, led a a similar group of bipartisan uh, representatives in the House. to introduce the uh, Opportunity Zones, uh, Transparency Extension and Improvement Act. Um, The senators and representatives were joined by um, Senators Warner, Van Hollen, um, and uh, and Young, um, as well as uh, representatives uh, Kildy, Sewell, and Walorski. So a good uh, ten co-sponsors came together um, again on a bipartisan basis uh, to introduce this in both chambers. Um, and you know this this legislation uh, is is really important. It's uh, you know a thoughtful set of um, of improvements to strengthen the Opportunity Zones policy. Um, and it is notable that um, the longtime champions of this policy in Congress, the original co-sponsors of the Investing in Opportunity Act, which was that initial vehicle uh, that first established the idea of opportunity zones and was ultimately incorporated into the tax law in 2017, um, that they are behind you know this group of uh, of improvements as well, and and came together to uh, put the, the, this set of uh, of policies together. Um, so very notable as to who's behind it, and I think um, you know the the co-sponsors who came around it really represent um, a, a really fantastic group. Um, that will hopefully grow, um, and again, with uh, maybe the support um, or uh, of, of this group as well. Um, so I'll go through uh, kind of each of the provisions in some detail, um, and Rachel uh, and I will kind of tag team um, this conversation um, and provide some examples of kind of how we potentially see this working in practice um, and uh, some of the kind of intent behind um, the provisions and what, the, uh, what they aim to do um, in terms of how, how it would strengthen the OZ policy. See you. Um, so I think the, the first uh the first point is or the, the first like really important posi- uh, provision that um while it's kind of section 202, I think in the in the legislation, I'll address it first, um, is the establishment of reporting requirements. Um I think if you have been a part of any conversations around opportunity zones uh, in the past uh you know four or so years, um, reporting requirements, something has likely come up. Um, you know, the uh, reporting was part of the original the Investing in Opportunity Act. It was It was always intended uh, to be part of the Opportunity Zones policy so we can all track better kind of what activities are taking place because of the incentive in communities across the country. Um, it was uh, taken out for procedural rules in the 2017 tax uh, tax bill process. Um, and so uh, since then, several bills have been introduced, um, including by Booker and Scott, um, to uh, reestablish reporting requirements and actually go above and beyond what was even originally included. Um, and and uh, essentially what this... Uh, what the provisions in this bill would do is this make this one of the most closely monitored, if not the most closely monitored policy of its kind. Um, So the, 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 the reporting bill that's actually included in this bill is the IMPACT Act, which was Senator Scott's bill that he introduced on in a bipartisan basis at the end of 2019. Um, so that's essentially been folded into um, this legislation. Um, and what the IMPACT Act would do is, uh, is codify and expand Form 8996 and 8997, so reporting required for both opportunity funds and investors. Um, it would also require an annual report, for Treasury to publish an annual report of aggregated information from the collection of that data on those forms um, or or through the process that's established uh, through this legislation. Um, And I think what's also really notable, and again, what goes a bit above and beyond what what most kind of place-based policies require is it would also um, require a a kind of community outcomes uh, study as well. So um, on a longer term basis, um, it would require Treasury um, in collaboration with other agencies to take a look at the outcomes of Opportunity Zones as compared to um, other low-income communities that were not designated as Opportunity Zones, but would have been eligible in that 2018 designation process. Um, So it's interesting in that we have almost kind of a natural experiment here in a built-in control group with those low-income communities that were eligible but not chosen what are those outcomes of those communities versus those who received the Opportunity Zones designation um, and measuring that again, on a kind of longitudinal scale. Um, so uh, that report would be issued at the sixth and 11th year after the date of enactment. So that would give us a much better sense of, you know, uh, is this policy accomplishing its goals um, to improve the outcome, the economic outcomes and, and increase economic opportunities you know, for residents of the communities that were designated as opportunity zones. So, um, uh, you know, all taken all together, um, really important, uh, you know, uh, policy to strengthen the transparency and the you know community outcome measurements um, around this policy, um, and something that has generally been called on by a broad and wide group of um, you know the champions in Congress, but also by external stakeholders. And I think what's also really important about The Impact Act um, is that it's, I think, generally accepted by the market as something that strikes a good balance of not being overly burdensome, but yet still collecting really important information to help us assess um, how the policy is working and what activities it's catalyzing nationwide.
2: The only thing I'll add to that, Catherine, you just mentioned it, but in our discussion with fund managers, uh, fund managers have taken a look at the requirements here and have said, this is not a problem. You know and That was one of the key concerns. We don't want this to be overly burdensome. We don't wanna be providing personal identifying information from investors and fund managers seem to be on board with being able to meet these requirements. And to Catherine's point made earlier, it, it's gonna be really important, especially if we wanna see uh, OZs last into the future, even beyond a potential extension, to be able to ground our perceptions of the policy in data as opposed to anecdotes, which unfortunately we too often rely upon today. So that's all I'll add on reporting.
1: Great, great. Um, that's yeah, help, helpful um, background. Yeah, the impact, actually, we've had the benefit of having that out in the world since 2019. And so, um, you know, folks have had, Uh, a lot of time to take a look at it and even kind of build out some uh, potential models to help uh, meet requirements there if it were to indeed be enacted. Um, And I think that the general consensus just to echo Rachel's point is that it it shouldn't be uh, too challenging to do. So um, again, strikes that balance. Um, So the next uh, kind of set of provisions um, is uh, looking at the Opportunity Zones map itself um, and the designations of some of those zones. So it would modify um, the map Slightly, and uh, taking a look at um, you know z- zones that are currently, um, or according to the latest available data. Um, are uh, have an, uh, a median family income of 130% or above the national average um, and early sunsetting uh, the OZ designation for those tracks. Um, I'll kind of start out um, by saying that generally the map is very well targeted um, to high need communities. Um, this was validated in the GAO report that came out uh, late last year um, that found you know what what our research had also shown is generally that opportunity zones are lower income, higher poverty than than the national average and even um, more so than the low income communities that were eligible, um, but not designated. So governors on the whole did a very good job of um, of picking places that were, um, you know, aligned with the intent of the behind the incentive. But there are a handful of outliers, and a small percentage of tracks do have were eligible, but do have a, a higher median family income that exceeds that threshold um, that's set out in the legislation. And so, uh, the the legislation would essentially lay out a process um, by which those zones would be identified, and then ultimately early sunset. Um, state executives, though, would also have the ability to replace those zones on a one for one basis with higher need communities, um, and And there's uh, additional parts of the process as well. Um, states we've heard from states that some mistakes were made in the designation process—true mistakes, like you know the wrong census tract number—that um, ultimately led to like a, a battle, you know, a, a former battlefield or a graveyard or a swamp land being designated where there's truly no opportunity for investment. Um, you know, those uh, would be eligible to be added to the list. Similarly, if state executives wanted to make the case uh, to Treasury that um, a, a tract that does have an, a median family income that exceeds that threshold. Um, Um, is really critical to their economic development strategy or or kind of make a a similar case. And if Treasury agrees, they could potentially get that track accepted as well. Um, So there's, uh, again, a a kind of lengthy, uh, thorough process that's laid out in the legislation um, to allow for um, a kind of refinement of the map um, and taking a look at, again, a small percentage of the tracks um, that would be would be eligible for that sunset. Um, it also lays out rules and guidance for pre-existing investments, so essentially investments that have already taken place in these zones or are planned for these zones, um, and provides, um, again, some rules for, for how those investments should be treated. Um, essentially, you know, if, if they meet certain requirements um, and these investments were kind of ongoing um, in these zones, obviously, these zones are currently zones and so, um, you know, should be able to receive the tax benefit um, if they can kind of show that that, that investment was sort of made or um, was planned um, prior to uh, kind of de-designation. Um, yeah, go ahead, Rachel.
2: Yeah, I, I just think it's a great idea to do early sunset of the zones that don't lie within the intent of the policy, just because we we don't think that there's been a significant amount of investment in those zones, but again, perception, uh, it it leaves it open to um, to critiques and criticism around the amount of capital that could be going to those zones. So I think it's a good um, opportunity to tighten that up a little bit. And uh, just so folks know, Joint Committee on Taxation uh, did find that only six percent of opportunity zone capital, as of 2019 had gone to these contiguous tracks, which often get a lot of, uh, I guess, press about um, about potentially being uh, these zones that don't deserve OZ capital, but are instead getting investment. So again, I just think it's it's limiting the exposure to risk around critique and criticism. And I love that the legislation has in it that designation of new zones, Uh, will require some community input because we know that the way designation happened the first time around, some states had an open process, some states had a closed process. So I think that community input is going to be really important. We're hoping for an open and transparent process across the board.
1: Yeah, great points, Um, especially on, on the last one. Yeah, trying to kind of take some best practices learned from the 2018 process and apply those to um, this, uh, certainly more limited, um, kind of process that would, that would take place, um, in States, uh, where if this legislation were to pass, um, one thing, uh, the one kind of follow-on question that is natural and that we would, uh, usually get, um, is, you know, what, where are these zones? Um, and at this point, um, it is, uh, we don't have a, a full understanding or a map set yet of like, which of these zones would um, exceed that 130 or meet or exceed that 130% of, um, median family income. Um, And that's because uh, the 2020 census data is the latest available data. Um, Of course, that corresponds to 2020 census boundaries. Um, IRS has, uh, you know, provided guidance that opportunity zones will retain um, the 2010 boundaries, and the map is kind of set and uh, remains so. Uh, according to those, you know, designations, um, what that means is that we'll, uh, we, or Treasury, or somebody who has the capacity to do this, um, will need to, uh, ho- hopefully, a federal agency will need to kind of correspond that 2020 data. Um, to the 2020, 2010 boundaries rather. So um, that is a, 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 it's a bit of a task. Um, and so uh, that's why we don't yet have um, the information or, or the full scope yet of, of the map. Um, but based on previous sets of data, when we've done this, uh, you know, this analysis, it's safe to say that this will be a small percentage of the overall map. Um, in the similar vein um, of kind of relooking at the map, um, the, uh, the legislation also incorporates the Rust to Revitalization Act that was introduced back in um, last month in March uh, by representatives Kildee and Ruppersberger. What this would do is, assen- is essentially, um, it would expand the map very slightly um, to uh, opportunity or to tracks rather that are zero population, adjacent to an opportunity zone um, and uh, formerly industrial and have a brownfield site. Um, it's a lot of criteria. And so um, because a, a, a tract would have to meet all of those, it's a, again, it's a very narrow, Uh, narrowly scoped um, addition, uh, you know, to the Opportunity Zones map, but, um, you know, generally and very much in line with the intent of the incentive to try to bring capital to, um, you know, these areas that could be real uh, uh, anchors of economic uh, opportunity and activity, um, but traditionally have had to have a really hard time attracting financing because of the brownfield or formerly industrial status. Um, And so, and, and of course, we're not eligible initially because zero population uh, means that they can't meet, you know, the poverty or income uh, requirements um, as, as laid out in the statute. Um, but uh, again, still very much, I think, are in line with the intent behind the incentive. And so um, this would allow for uh, zones like that one or like, like those, um, you know, to, uh, to be eligible to be designated as opportunity zones. So state executives essentially would need to identify those tracks based on that criteria and submit them to Treasury um, for uh, review and certification. Um, so, kind of moving on to the um, away from the path and sort of back to kind of other other parts of the policy. Um, so, I think uh, you know the next thing that this would do um, is uh, extend the policy. So. Um, essentially it would take the you know 2026 deadline um, you know for gain deferral and to invest um, and extend that out by two years uh, to the end of 2028. Um, and it would also lower the requirement. Um, so right now you have to hold your investment. Uh, for seven years um, in order to receive the 15% step up in basis or the additional 5% uh, step up in basis. Um, you know, of course that deadline passed essentially um, in, at the end of 2019. Um, this would lower that from uh, seven years or change that from seven years to six years. So what that means in practice um, is that if this legislation were to pass for some this year, um, that investors would have before the you know until the end of the year to invest and take uh, take advantage of the full suite of benefits um, that the policy offers. Um, this is essentially the, uh, I think we, another question that we've gotten as we've expl- you know kind of participated in, in um, conversations like this one is you know, why two years. Why not even longer? You know, the two years is really essentially this is a perishable incentive um, and it's meant to make up for some lost time um, that it took to uh, get the regulations uh, set and finalized. It took about two years um, for Treasury to um, issue final uh, final regulations. And during that time frame, you know, a lot of folks felt like they they couldn't fully participate in the market until they had. That, those clear rules of the road. And so, um, you know, this is essentially to, uh, to kind of recoup, um, you know, some of those, some of that time lost um, within the regulatory process. Um, and as that was getting uh, fully stood up.
2: Yeah. And I think, you know, all available data points to the fact that there was exponential investment volume year over year, uh, 2020 to 2021. Uh, I think having an additional two years just helps to Uh, further harness that growth and uh, expand the marketplace. Um, I think it's particularly important for a lot of the communities that launched initiatives and pilots last year or in 2020 to be able to uh, scale and be able to attract that investment so that they feel like they're not coming in at the tail end of an opportunity, that they're actually fully able to, to realize the benefits of the policy.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up that angle. I mean, I think um, that's, we've often heard from, from communities too, not just, you know, investors and other, you know, stakeholders in the market that um, they would really appreciate the extra time because it's taken, you know, it's taken a while to also just fully get comfortable with the incentive, fully understand it. Um, and so having a little extra time to help attract investment, you know, put the strategies in place to attract investment. Um, you know, to their communities will be really, really helpful. So um, that that we've also heard, um, you know, similar feedback, um, which is, is great. Um, great. So I think that uh, the the next piece, there's only a couple more. So bear, bear with me. I know we're going into a lot of detail here, but I hope this is helpful. So you're doing um,
0: great. Uh, yeah, keep it going. And we got two more. And then uh, we've got a lot more planned for today. But this yes. is important. So make sure everybody is on the same page about what this bill does. By the way, I had a sorry to interrupt, Catherine, but I had a couple questions in the chat about which bill it was we were discussing. I think some people may have joined later or missed that. So I did post a link to the bill in the chat in case anybody's uh, curious about what exactly it is we're discussing. It's, It's referred to as the Opportunity Zones Improvement, Transparency and Extension Act. It was introduced in Congress earlier this month as Catherine Mentioned at the at the top of the show here, uh, Catherine. I'll turn it back over to you for the last two points. Thank you.
1: Yeah, sure, of course. Um, so, last two points are uh, so establishment of a fund of fund structure. Um, and so essentially what this does is modify um, the definition of a uh, qualified opportunity fund to allow it to be a feeder fund. So essentially an opportunity fund um, would be able to invest in another opportunity fund. Um, although then that uh, the opportunity fund that receives that capital would need to deploy it you know, into qualifying property. So um, it wouldn't be kind of an endless cycle of um, investing in funds and funds and funds and funds. It would really kind of pull up, have that be limited to sort of that one uh, that one transaction. Um, but uh, what we generally, and I know Rachel will probably go into this, but um, have generally heard really, really strong positive feedback um, on this provision, especially. Um, and uh, the fact that it would do what I think the, the, the co-sponsors were intending here, which is to um, just open up the um, opportunity for uh, smaller funds, more regionally focused funds, funds that um, you know, can maybe can't take you know really large investments, um, but are generally uh, you know pursuing very high impact projects um, that again are just kind of scaled to the community that they are working in. Um, it's often hard to attract kind of institutional investors, you know, for that type of a project. Um, and so, a fund of fund structure, um, you know, the intent here is that a fund of fund structure would allow for more capital to be able to be uh, uh, deployed into you know funds that are pursuing projects like that. Um, And uh, luckily, the the early um, kind of feedback we've received is that um, it would indeed kind of accomplish that goal. So Rachel, I know you've heard some of that as well. So I'll turn turn it over to you to fill in some details.
2: Yeah, as Catherine mentioned, as many of you all know, institutional capital needs to come in at high dollar investments. And further, it often has requirements where it can only be 20% of any given fund. And so you know, you have an institutional investor that can't come in any lower than 20 million, then you have to lever that up uh, by a factor of four or five. All of a sudden, you're looking at huge funds, and it's hard to deploy small dollar loans or small dollar investments through huge funds. So, where I'm seeing this being a, most uh, applicable really is in trying to get small dollar investments to operating businesses. As well as to do uh, community revitalization work, uh, specifically urban infill projects. So um, I'm looking forward to I'm looking forward to that, Catherine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um, yes, uh, I, I think me, me too. I think um, this will be ultimately be like a really impactful part of the of the legislation if it were passed. Um, and then last but not least, um, it, the legislation would establish a state and community dynamism fund um, would need to be appropriated um, but uh, appropriated at a billion dollars. Um, and this fund would actually not be specific to opportunity zones, so it would be um, used in kind of underserved underbanked rural type communities, um, not not only rural, I should say, but just generally kind of a, a broader, a bit of a broader aperture to kind of more underserved communities generally, um, but it would allow for, you know, technical assistance work, capacity building, um, uh, you know, real um, uh, best practices that we've seen kind of employed and when they're employed, you know, has really been Um, a a successful for communities that, you know, have put, for example, an Opportunity Zones coordinator in place or, um, you know, generally uh, been, you know, been able to, um, you know, put a kind of technical assistance program uh, for underserved communities in place to attract OZ capital. And so um, taking some of those examples and trying to scale those, um, you know, to, to communities that need it, Um, So that would be types of activities that would be allowed um, uh, under the fund. Um, In addition to pre-development investments, um, investments into uh, or uh, risk mitigation into um, opportunity funds um, that are, you know, pursuing high impact projects in high need industries. So, you know, things like, of course, affordable housing, health clinics, you know, grocery stores and food deserts, um, you know, examples like that
2: yeah and nothing to add on that fund except for just to underscore the importance of uh its availability and um overall just my take is that this is a pretty good uh package of proposals i think there's something for everyone in here
0: well that's great and that's a great breakdown of the opportunity zones improvement transparency and extension act again that was introduced earlier this month in both houses of congress both the house and the senate Uh, so to briefly recap those five points in case Anyone joining us uh, late, uh, one, it would expand the reporting and transparency requirements from qualified opportunity funds. Two, this bill wants to disqualify or early sunset a very small amount of high income opportunity zones. Three, we're talking about an extension of the policy by an additional two years, which would be really great, I think, uh, allow for a lot more people to use the program and and a lot more capital to flow into it over over time. And four, uh, allow for fund of funds concept. And, and five, finally, what you just discussed there, that state and community dynamism fund. Uh, by the way, in case you can't get enough OZ reform bill chatter, I recently released a podcast episode with Shay Hawkins where he and I broke down all of these major talking points. You can find that podcast at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that at least. And uh, hi to Shay out there. Uh, I want to revisit the reform bill, why advocacy of it is crucial and how our viewers and listeners today can help. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first, I think it would be really useful to highlight a few community oriented opportunities Zone success stories. So, with that, I want to turn it over to Chris Cooley of OzWorks Group. He has four VIPs that he's going to bring on stage who are driving some of these community driven efforts. Chris, take it away. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Rachel. And thanks,
3: Catherine. Um, Rachel and Catherine, we're going to, um, we're going to, Shuffle you off stage and we'll bring you back during the Q&A section of this, Um, but yeah I I just want to kind of preface this by saying you know Jimmy and I had a conversation, probably a few months ago now, and we kind of said hey I think we can rally around. uh, The the communities that we've built and you know start to advocate for opportunity zones and extension and improvement and you know, we decided, hey, okay, well, let's step up to the plate. And if you don't um, ever step up to the plate, there's no chance of hitting a home run, maybe we hit a single, but we had no idea that this new bill was going to be proposed, right, Jimmy, it was sort of like, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe we were looking into some kind of crystal ball. But um, in in our collaboration and communication with Catherine, uh, we decided that we really wanted to step up and have this letter signed. So um, that's what we're going to ultimately do today. But, um, What we have at OzWorks Group is this incredibly connected community of OZ stakeholders and leaders that are doing the work, uh, that are fulfilling the promise of the incentive. And it's really important that we step up and start to highlight um, these incredible folks that you may uh, be seeing on the screen right now. But um, we wanted to make uh, this platform available to be able to have them tell just really briefly their story and what they're doing to uh, to utilize OZs as community development tools, and so these these are people uh, that that weave um, a thread through the entire tapestry that is Opportunity Zones, from uh, from from raising money to technical assistance programs to support projects to be developed, uh, all the way right down to boots on the ground, uh, hanging out with people uh, in the community, listening to their needs, doing internship programs. So I'm going to let all these folks explain what they're doing, but. What we wanted to do is uh, really, you know, be a voice, rally around this incredible community, uh, especially at Osworks Group. I know EIG has a community, Jimmy has a community. Like putting all of these uh, folks and you all out there listening together to say, "All right, let's make some noise about how good this thing really is," because the people who are doing the work very seldom have time to be able to go to announce what they're doing because they're doing the work. So um I appreciate everybody who's um who's being who's here and who's gonna talk and everybody for attending. But we again we really want to highlight the people who are fulfilling this true promise. So before I go any further with that, um I wanna start by um uh, saying hi to Jose, good friend. And um Jose, I'm gonna kick off with you and uh, hopefully folks out there will see how this whole you know sort of thing is weaving together in a storyline. But um Jose, please, and and everyone uh, who's a panelist, um, introduce yourself and I'll kind of call on you as we go. But Jose, you kick things off um, and tell us about yourself a little bit and and what you're doing down there in Puerto Rico.
4: Well, first, uh, thank you, Chris and LC Works Group for the opportunity to be speaking here today. Um, I'm Jose Torres, the managing partner and founder of Maduro Capital Partner. Um, I actually relocated back to Puerto Rico three years ago and founded this company to be focused on investing in Opportunity zones throughout Puerto Rico. Um, It has been a challenge. Uh, It has been a learning experience and trying to educate the uh, Puerto Rico community and also the US investors about Puerto Rico. Uh, On the other hand, uh, it's been thrilling and and we're very happy that we were able to organize the Puerto Rico Opportunity Zone Fund, uh, which is an ESG fund focused on investing in Opportunity zones in Puerto Rico. Our goal is really to show uh, today is to show how investing in businesses is really a community tool, a development tool that can help really the residents of of a local community. And that's our goal uh, at the Puerto Rico Opportunity Zone Fund. Right now, we were able to make two investments. And what I want to show is how those two investments really have helped the quality of life of the Puerto Rico um, uh, people. Um, The first investment we made, was actually in a company called Sunbeat Energy. And what they do is they develop and manufacture uh, all-in-one energy storage systems, uh, mostly for commercial uh, and residential usage. Uh, Puerto Rico has a very high um, um, power price, but worse than that, it has very unreliable energy. So people just are not able to work. People lose their food at night when the power goes out. Um, So providing this product to everybody, to the masses, is going to really improve the quality of life, but it also helps the environment by decreasing CO2 emissions, and ultimately, it also stimulates the community. So that's an example of how we're looking at investing in companies. We're really focused on how it can help the local community, how it can help the environment, and how it can also help the economy, which ultimately helps the community. The second um, investment we made is in a company called Fusion Farms, and that's an indoor vertical farming aquaponic operation. In Puerto Rico, over 85% of the food is actually imported. So things like shipping issues, uh, weather issues actually can cause disruption and price fluctuation in the Puerto Rico food market. So a company that's actually at the forefront of doing indoor farming and vertical farming makes it more affordable um, to provide those goods. It's actually providing not only resiliency for Puerto Rico and food security, but it's actually providing fresh food on a weekly basis to the community of Puerto Rico. Um, just to close, what I would say is that this legislation is going to really help what we're trying to do for two reasons. Not only all of the changes that are, were discussed earlier today, but people in Puerto Rico are just starting to really learn about opportunity zones, and the ability for this extension and also the fund, fund structure, I think, will allow more people to uh, actually have an opportunity to look at Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican community to understand. So thank you. I'm available to answer any questions later.
3: Jose, thanks so much. And, and um, feel free if, you, if it's appropriate and you'd like to to put your contact information in the chat that goes for all the, the speakers. Um, and so we're going to go from uh, someone who's who's distributing the funds to someone uh, who's operating a business and also who I have learned has moved into the opportunity zone where she's making an impact. Um, So Sue, uh, thank you for being here and please um, tell us who you are and and a little bit about your story.
5: Okay, well, my name is Susan Springsteen. I am the president of H2O Connected, which is uh, the first QOZB in Chester County, Pennsylvania. We're located in uh, Coatesville and um, that Coatesville itself has about 13,000 people, 31% poverty rate. There was basically one employer, the steel mill, when steel went bust, so did the town. Uh, 9% unemployment rate and the average median income is about 34,000 a year, which is less than half of what it takes to subsist in Chester County, Pennsylvania. So it's a city with a lot of needs. Um, my business is a technology company. It's, it, we, we developed um, and manufacture a wireless system that can detect every single way your tank toilet is wasting water and running up your water bill. So it's a green product. We're a, we're a woman-owned business. And then we decided to collaborate. We teamed up with a developer to convert a 20-year vacant um, 1902 Um, office building uh, through adaptive reuse into an innovation center, and we added 20,000 square feet behind it. Um, And so it's now 30,000 square feet. It's occupied. I'm doing this Zoom from our building, and, uh, and we have a product development company there that basically takes innovations from concept on a napkin through development into commercialization. We have a manufacturing facility there, so there's five different electronic products that are being made here at the moment. Um, we are. We also have um, four, five early stage technology companies that are either here, or we have one that's moving in in the next two weeks. Um, so it's just really, it's a it, it's a project that's that's operated and working. And some of the things that I found is that. You know, we are boots on the ground. We're very much involved in the community. I actually live here now, moved in about nine months ago. And because the OZ initiative requires a 10 year involvement to get the full benefits, you really become part of the community if, you know, when you're directly involved. And so we've established a long-term high school internship program. A lot of underserved school districts don't have really strong STEM programs. So we have 15 students in here now. We expect to double that. Um, We're offering a marketing track. So the kids that want to go directly into the workforce will have skill sets where they can actually make a a livable wage from the beginning. You know, as we all know, we're having trouble finding qualified employees. So we're trying to solve that problem. We're working with um, the city to offer entrepreneurship programs for people that have a side hustle that warrants being taken to the new The next level and we're also working with groups providing first-time homebuyer education and grants because in coatesville there's this collective move to avoid the massive gentrification and to do that we've got to build the earning capacity of the community that's here they're smart they want to work they don't have a seat at the table so through what we're doing and working with others we can give them a seat at the table and give them a chance to to make their lives better and let me tell you, when you're in these little, these towns that have been forgotten and dumped on for so long, when they start to see steel coming out of the ground for the first time in 50 years, it creates a hope and a buzz and it brings other investors into town. And it's it just, there's a, there's a, there is a community, there's a human being return on investment through OZs that I haven't seen anywhere else. And you cannot, you can't quantify that rate of return. So. We're happy to be a part of it. And I'm happy to talk to anybody about what we do.
3: Thank you, Sue. Definitely drop your contact information. Um, your story is incredible. And uh, every time I talk to you, it's inspiring because what you're doing is you're actually going to opportunity zones and stepping foot in them to feel and sense what the impact possibilities are. So thank you for that. Um, so we're gonna roll now into um, Stacy out on the West Coast. And um, Stacy, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to get to know you over the last year plus. Um, and uh, you know you, you, you have a slightly different um, experience, but very similar to others in a sense that there's so much community development going on with what you do. So please tell everyone about yourself and, and what you're up to.
6: Thank you, Chris, and thank you for putting this together. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Stacey Cumberbatch, I'm the managing director of Blended Impact, we're an innovation lab and emerging mass uh, asset manager, and we're based in Southern California. Uh, So we provide technical assistance to local government, uh, project sponsors and entrepreneurs and OZs. Uh, We work extensively in Riverside County, which has the third highest amount of OZs in the state of California. And we cover 14 cities. Um, Our cities range anywhere from the university town over to, for example, Lithium Valley, which President Biden has declared as a um, a national priority. Uh, So there's a lot of potential here. Uh, Cities are anywhere from 18,000 in size to 330000 thousand, uh, you know, people in size. So there's a lot of range as well in the, in terms of the programs that we have to create to be able to serve the different, you know, municipalities and the, the, the communities that we work with. Now, we work from the ground up. Uh, initially, we were working within the EDA's office and we were helping them create prospectuses, for example, to um, organize around their priorities and to um, organize around the assets, really understand what the investment goals are for each uh, and every community. Uh, then we started with uh, right-sizing or creating capital attractions, uh, Uh, strategies for each of these cities, and they all differ, right? Uh, Now we're focused on what the the project underwriting and the uh, project-based capital attraction strategies would be from the ground up. So this is all community economic development. This is projects that the community wants to see and have been supported either by nonprofits and or cities that are right here on the ground. Um, One project that we worked with, for example, with the city of Coachella was Opportunity Coachella, which we launched last year. It was a four-week Business attraction and entrepreneurship initiative. Um, It was a first of its kind for the city. Uh, Coachella has a very large name, but it's a very small city, only about 40,000 people. Um, It was primarily a rural and and migrant uh, farm workers community. Um, And the largest industry there is tourism, for example, um, from the Coachella Festival. Uh, Fun fact, the the city actually does not host the the festival. It's hosted in the adjacent city, and they don't even have a hotel to take advantage of the the transit um, uh, occupancy. So we really wanted to focus on how can we bring Businesses uh, and, and development here. We received a grant specifically for the Opportunity Zones, and we were able to launch um, uh, a program that awarded four entrepreneurs money, seed stage grants to start their businesses and grow it right here in the city. First of its kind, we even uh, were able to catalyze a major economic development project out of that, which mayor from the city manager, everyone is very excited about and we're we're still working towards uh, catalyzing that project. So really good outcomes from that. Now, none of this work can continue without the proposed legislation. Um, Local officials in each of our municipalities have been laying a lot of groundwork to prepare uh, on catalyze this OZ ecosystem, but the pandemic was a huge blow. Right. So now to make up for this lost time, this this, this legislation will be crucial specifically because it, it provides some things that we need in, in terms of capacity at the local level uh, in addition to funding for these projects that are hard to fund. So very excited for the legislation um, uh, and, and what it will do and bring for um, the residents in, in our area.
3: Thank you, Stacy. I, um, I really appreciate what you're doing, and, and so, we, you know, like I said, we're, the, the whole point here was to kind of walk, work through the tapestry of people that are involved in this OZ stakeholder landscape, and um, what you're doing and working with the cities is, is amazing, so thank you for being here and, and certainly put your contact info. Um, we are running a little bit over time, but I, I want to highlight someone who I just recently met, Donna, um, at Opportunity Appalachia. Um, Donna, if uh, I know you had a slide ready, but if you could, maybe we'll we'll nix that for now <laughs> um, until next time. But uh, I, I would love to hear about the successes that you all have seen and, and hear a little bit more about you. And then we'll flip it into uh, this conversation about the actual letter that we want everyone to get on board and sign today. So uh, I'll pitch, pitch it over to Jimmy in a sec. But Donna, if you could, uh, two minutes or so, give us a little bit of background. Thanks. Thanks,
7: Chris. And thank you again for the invitation. And it's great to hear all the wonderful work that uh, my colleagues are doing out in the field. So uh, Donna Gambrell, I'm President and CEO of Appalachian Community Capital, which is a community development financial institution. Uh, we also are leading an effort called Opportunity Appalachia. So in the Appalachian region, uh, we are there are 13 states in the region, includes all of West Virginia and portions of 12 other states. Uh, clearly uh, an area that has tremendous opportunities, but also challenges and When the Opportunity Zone Tax Program was enacted in 2017, many people believe that the rural opportunity zones were at a distinct disadvantage in attracting investments because number one, uh, the rural communities have fewer resources to enable them to develop community strategies and package transactions to potential investors. And and two, uh, the investment opportunities often have lower rates of financial return than do faster growing cities figured that there was going to be a way that we could actually be a player uh, in this market. And so Opportunity Appalachia was designed to bring investment to underserved coal communities in Appalachian, Ohio, Southwest Virginia, and West Virginia by providing needed technical assistance and working closely with private investors and public agencies that have prioritized support for opportunities on communities. This effort also became an essential component of economic recovery from the COVID downturn uh, in the region. So in the first phase, which was conducted in 2020, 2021, the Opportunity Appalachia Project supported 17 development projects in Opportunity Zones in those three states I just mentioned, Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia, that seeks to raise over $250 million in financing. And to date, five projects have been identified, uh, have identified financing sources and either have closed on their financing or are anticipated to close on $42 million in 2022, creating more than 170 jobs in coal impacted uh, communities. An additional four projects are likely to be financed later in 2023 uh, at $140 million or more resulting in the creation of over 1,000 additional quality jobs. So the cumulative impact of of the first round of Opportunity Appalachia is projected at nine projects, receiving about $182 million in financing and creating over 1,100 jobs from the 2021 project portfolio of 17 projects. You know, we view Opportunity Zones as one of the tools in a toolbox that can be used to foster community and economic opportunity and revitalize low-wealth communities. And And we certainly see that there's proof in the pudding in what we're doing with Opportunity Appalachia. Uh, uh, So I think you can look no further than three projects um, that we were gonna highlight in the slide, but I'll just mention them very, very quickly, Chris. Micronic Technologies, which is in Bristol, Virginia, was a $3 million investment in high growth award-winning water technology. Uh, They uh, were received the three, uh, sorry, $3 million. 100% of that uh, came from uh, Fund Quality Opportunity Fund. Hotel Swisher, which is in Somerset, Ohio, is a $3.2 million historic boutique hotel, 15 rooms in downtown uh, Somerset, locally owned, supporting tourism and op- uh, outdoor recreation. Uh, $5 million was raised for multi-state uh, for this multi-state project, which included the hotel with a local uh, OZ investor and a historic tax credit equity investment. And then the Cohen Building in Grafton, West Virginia is a $10 million redevelopment of historic downtown uh, building for use by identified for-profit and nonprofit tenants. We just received word yesterday that they're going to closing uh, in a few weeks. And so when we look at these projects, we know that uh, the projects that are being, developed, redeveloped in opportunity zones are having true impact. Uh, They are getting to the heart of what community economic development is all about. And we look forward to continuing working with these states and others and making sure that these projects are in place for the communities so that those communities can continue to grow and thrive. Thank you.
3: Donna, thank you so much. And thank you for everything you're doing. I, I, I really wanted to be able to tell, like, uh, at least in a short amount of time, a somewhat complete story of what's happening out there. Um, one of the things that we'll be doing is uh, I want to be able to highlight more of the stories that are coming out of the community and OzWorks group. There's just incredible people doing incredible things. Um, so I'm going to drop our YouTube link because we do plan to shoot more of these. And, and, and so go there, subscribe and follow. The one thing I do want to say is that uh, nothing has been done or is guaranteed. And you know, this bill that's being proposed is being proposed and it's not done. And there's a lot of questions coming up, what if, what will, what may happen, but um, without a collective voice uh, and politicians hearing what is being successfully executed through this incentive, um, there's no reason to pay any attention to it. So this is my rallying cry, right? And I know Jimmy's gonna lead into this letter in a second, but um, one of the reasons that we came together to do this is that we can be louder collectively. And so that's the point of initiating this dialogue and having this conversation and making sure that um, as, a, as, a, as an ecosystem, that us as representatives um, of these communities can do something to to put a voice in front of in front of politicians. So that's gonna be my uh, my parting word here. I'll put a link to our YouTube channel. And Jimmy, uh, if you wanna introduce the letter, I just wanna say again, I appreciate everyone making time to tell their stories a little bit and to, to be here today to listen to this. So thanks again.
0: Yeah, that was incredible. Thanks, Chris, for bringing those speakers on. And thank you again to Jose, Susan, Stacy, and Donna for sharing your Opportunity Zone success stories. This OZ reform bill would help advance more projects like the ones you just heard from today, but now we need your help. And to that end, as we've been alluding to uh, throughout the course of today's webinar, we've drafted a letter to congressional leadership that we're going to send off next week. And we're asking you to add your name to it. The more names we get, the more impactful our letter will be. Uh, We're going to ask you to sign it right now, but the deadline to sign is one week from today. So if you're not ready to sign it right now, if you want to read it, mull it over. Uh, you don't have to sign it right now. But of course, we'd love it if you could sign it right now. So to read the letter and sign your name to it, you can visit opportunitydb.com letter. And I've also dropped a link in the chat just a minute ago. It's it's right there. If you just want to click that link as well. We have a ton of great questions, by the way, I'm going to bring in Ashley Tyson to help us answer those questions in a couple more minutes. But first, actually, I want to see if uh, if Catherine and Rachel are, are still here. Uh, I wanted to bring them back in. Uh, and get their thoughts. I guess the first question to, to start us off on the Q&A portion is, uh, is from me, <laughs> kind of a leading question. Why is this type of advocacy so important? Why does it matter? Why is it crucial that we all as Opportunity Zone stakeholders reach out to Congress in this fashion?
1: Yeah, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. I mean, it's it's just imperative that um, you know members of Congress hear from their constituents or about activity that is happening in their districts and states. That is what drives. And motivates, you know, their work essentially. Um, and so uh, the stories, like we just heard, just incredible stories of how this is working, um, you know, in in the communities in which um, you know those leaders are, are working. Um, you know that those are the stories that members of Congress and their staff really want to hear. Um, we were just at uh, the Novogradic conference last week um, and uh, spoke about this legislation on a panel and was joined by. Ways and Means Committee staffer as well as um, staffer from uh, Senator Scott's office, both of whom reiterated how important this is and especially I think the the Ways and Means Committee member or or staffer rather I mean what he basically said was he has you know 30 or so members, um, you know that he's that he works with and works for directly, um, you know, uh, in the House Um, and what he observes in that role and from that vantage point is that they all need to know more about what's going on you know in their districts um, and they want to know um, they they look at this policy and maybe they don't uh, they're not fully aware of, you know, all the activity that it's catalyzing, you know, where they're uh, and the good potential good it's happening for their constituents. Those are all stories that need to be communicated directly, you know, to those offices. Um, So they are aware. And then when they are approached with legislation, like the one we've been talking about today, they can, you know, have a fuller picture of what's going on with the policy. um, And that will help them assess, you know, whether or not they feel like they can support, you know, this legislation. And so, Having that context, context having that background, um, is really critical for them, you know, to make an informed decision, you know, about their support for uh, policies like the ones we've been talking about today. So um, I'll, I'll yeah. leave it there.
2: Yeah, and just to add on to that, what they're going to want to hear about is the level of impact. So is this a project that uh, was on the books for a while but couldn't secure financing, and OZ financing came in and filled a gap or accelerated development? Uh, how many jobs are anticipated so you can use projections. you don't have to use actual jobs. Um, how is this contributing to the local tax base? How, how is it generating additional revenue for the community? And also how is it filling a need uh, that the community has identified, whether it's workforce housing, a, you know a new grocery store, whatever it is, I'm sure that it's filling some needs. So those are the types of things to communicate if you're going to send or do individual outreach outside of this template document.
0: Yeah, yeah, fantastic. Um, thank you both for for responding to that. I just brought in Ashley Tyson because we do have a few rather technical questions that I think uh, Ashley, as an Opportunity Zone attorney, would be well suited to help us address today. Really quick, uh, I just got reminded that, um, or I just I just got a request that, hey, wait a second. Um, this is great sending this letter to congressional leadership. What if I wanted to contact my member of Congress, whether that's uh, you know my two senators or my representative in the US House of Representatives. We have also drafted template letters that you can use. I've just uh, dropped a link in the chat to our advocacy toolkit. You can find that at opportunitydb.com slash advocacy hyphen toolkit. The link's there in the chat right now. Uh, if you go there, I've got um, links to three letters if you really wanna get carried away. One is the sign-on letter that we'd really like everyone to sign on to. And by the way, I see that we already have uh, 19 people who have signed it. So thank you for, that's a quick, you read fast and you sign quickly. So thank you for that, um, that's incredible. Um, if, beyond that though, if you also want to address a letter to your members of Congress, we have um, a template on that advocacy toolkit link that I just referred to. And then another thing is if you're a capital allocator, if you have a project or a fund that you have deployed capital into another opportunity zone, And you'd like to write to the members of Congress that represent that zone, even though it may be outside of where you live, that would be very powerful as well. So to that end, we also have a third letter um, that you can download at that link that I just linked to. And I'll drop it in the chat again here in in another minute in case anybody missed it. But let's let's get going with some of the questions here today. We've got a lot of good ones. Um, Stuart asks, how about adding new OZ properties, such as areas suffering from disasters, fires and drought and expanding OZs within tribal lands. Does this bill do that at all? Is there potential to add new opportunity zones? I might look to um, to, to Catherine to to address that.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So this bill does not uh, expand opportunity zones or the map uh, to include those places. I know that there has been legislation proposed in the past uh, to to do that um, specifically for, or in the wake of natural disasters, but um, this bill does not uh, incorporate those provisions.
8: I think that but, one of the ways that there, that that could happen, though, is to the extent that there's going to be some of those higher income tracks removed, that right, those exactly. tracks could be one of the ones identified to be replaced.
1: That's true, right? So yeah, if that's a, a stated priority of the state executives, they could think about um, high higher need places, perhaps affected by you know those disasters, to be eligible as replacement tracks.
8: So along those lines, and one of the things that uh, that the, the legislative aides mentioned at the grata conference was get involved with your grassroots uh, groups. So really kind of explore your local community about different groups that are out there. Educate them about opportunity zones, but then also really look to how your state's going to handle that process. So get involved, right? So reach out to your governor and reach out to the governor's office to find out What the process is going to be for them to be replacing those tracks so that you can be a part of the conversation relative to that happening
0: yeah i think that's really important um because there's going to be some new tracks designated if this legislation were to pass as it is currently written i just dropped in some links again in case anybody missed them earlier in the chat there mitchell asks if legislation extends this policy out two years i assume that means those putting capital gains into an OZ fund this year, 2022, would then be able to go at least five years to get the 10%? Or is that gone and being replaced by your six years? And what is that incentive percentage? So maybe uh, maybe Ashley and Catherine, you can, you can break down what, what is happening with that step up in basis should this reform legislation get, get pushed through those, those benefits there?
8: Catherine, you want to take a shot at that and then I can follow on?
1: Yeah, sure, so as I mentioned, um, you know, if this were to pass uh, before the end of this year, then investors would have till the end of this year to uh, take advantage of that 15% step up in basis, because you would be able to hold um, for six years until the end of that 2028 date. Um, the five-year benefit though still remains as well. So the six-year benefit does not replace it. Um, it just, again, kind of changes that seven-year requirement to six years for the 15% step-up in basis or for the additional 5%. The 10% remains the same. So um, again, if this were to pass before the end of this year, um, you know, investors would have before the end of 2023 um, you know, to invest and receive the 10% step-up in basis.
8: Interestingly enough, as well, is that it would also make it so that uh, that anybody that got in, I think, what would that be prior to 2020 would uh, would also then get the 15 percent because you'd be in six years. Um, Well, I just have to well, no, because you would you would have it to the end of this year. Uh, I was thinking about that that might that that might be significant as well. But everybody that would be in before uh, before 2022 would get the full 15 percent.
0: That's right. Yeah, someone yeah. someone get Ashley a calculator.
8: I tell you what or or a calendar,
0: right? Or a calendar, yeah. Hey, um question here from Andy. He he mentions that the president's approval ratings have been really low for many months now, uh stuck below 39 to 40%. Is there a concern that his widespread unpopularity will actually harm the chances that this bill is passed in Congress? <clears throat> and I guess to that end, you know, I might even add on, when could we expect this bill to get passed in Congress? Do you think it would be passed prior to the midterm elections or or would it be in a lame duck session? I know I'm asking everyone to gaze into their crystal ball here, but Rachel, why don't, why don't I pose that one to you first and then we can hear from Catherine and and Ashley.
2: Yeah, I think what we've heard and I'll defer to Catherine because she's been on the Hill with this mostly is that this looks like it could be something that could be passed through a tax extenders vehicle. Um, You know, crystal ball, I do not have. So (laughs) I'm going to deflect on a Catherine to provide any additional information on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, typically uh, an extenders package usually comes together towards the end of the year. Um, you know, that's when a lot of tax provisions typically expire. And so, um, that's uh, a lot of times, uh, the point at which Congress kind of turned their attention to that. Um, so I, I think that's probably the most likely vehicle, um, that, that could be, uh, you know, the, the vehicle in which this could be included. Um, so end of the year, sort of the, the, you know, very very rough estimate again. Um, you know, no, uh, very hard to predict. But and uh, you know, just on the kind of earlier point about the the politics of this, I mean, I think this is a bipartisan piece of legislation, um, and it has really strong you know bipartisan uh, uh, you know champions in both houses or sorry in both chambers in the house and the senate. Um, so I think that that goes a long way um, to to showing that this has strong support across. You know uh, uh, the range of kind of political spectrum, um, and uh, and and hopefully that um, you know lends itself well toward uh, toward uh, getting included and you know getting the the attention and support of leadership. So that that's what certainly we'll we'll be working toward.
8: And, and I'm going to find this I'm going to, you know, I don't really have anything extra to add other than, you know, no crystal balls inside of this, but I think it is an opportunity. And I think that opportunity zones are kind of one topic that everybody can agree on that's uh, actually overall a good thing, particularly if we're adding some of the reporting requirements and the impact things necessary to, you know, to really give us some information about it. So, uh, you know, regardless of when it gets through. I just hope that it does. And that's what we're all here on this call to do is to make sure that we're spreading the word to try to make that happen.
0: Right on. So by the way, we are at the top of the hour. So if anybody had only blocked off an hour for this and need to hop, I won't hold it against you. Just wanted to be um, respectful of everybody's time here today. But if you can stick around a little while longer, I know we've got plenty of questions to keep answering here. So I'm going to keep going. But if you have to slip off anybody, please feel free to do so. Won't hold it against you. Jamie uh, pushes back a little bit against um, the legislation. He asks, private investors, not funds, are very sensitive to increased federal regulation. Why ask for additional reporting, such as how many jobs are created, unless future regulation is anticipated? The number one reason private investors are not doing projects is the lack of faith that the favorable current OZ legislation and rules will hold over time. So Jamie kind of pushes back against this bill a little bit. Um, What what are your thoughts there? Rachel, I might start with you.
2: Yeah, I actually, I'll push back on Jamie a little bit because investors are not the ones, basically no investor information is being collected or reported out. And so any sort of personal identifying information uh, that investors hold dear will not be provided to the public. Going to the on the jobs created piece of it with funds, um, I'm not sure, Catherine. You'll need may need to correct me. I'm not sure if jobs created is, is part of the Impact Act. I thought it was really just high level factors around the number of qualified opportunity funds, uh, where funds are investing, how much investments being invested in opportunity zones. So maybe jobs created is a piece of it, but at the end of the day, I think that the funds are on the hook for um, for reporting out that information. And so really this should not have any impact on investors at all, whether it's regulatory b- burden or uh, reporting to the IRS. Yeah, unless gonna, they manage their own fund.
8: And then- I was just going to say, and, and, and to that end, right? I mean, even on the captive, you know, funds, I don't necessarily know that it's going to be that much more onerous. And to that end, I think that this is, you know, this actually you know, provides uh, an opportunity for those captive funds to, you know, to get their numbers behind their impact. You know, one of the things that I continue to talk to people about whenever I'm on a strategy call or is we're setting up a captive fund is, what's your impact story? How are you actually making a positive impact in the zone? And that this isn't just a, a racket to try and save you taxes. Obviously, we want to save you taxes, and that's one of the value benefits of the program. But, you know, you as doing this and as part of this and as part of a leader in this program, you know, need to be thinking about that. And so this actually allows you to quantify that impact story. And I think that there's going to be a bunch of providers and third-party providers that are going to jump in to assist on doing that. We're certainly working on that on our end relative to helping, you know, folks that are trying to democratize this, you know, this program to come up with a simple way to try to do that.
2: Yeah. And just on the jobs created piece, it feels like a sticking point to me that it's very easy to do projections around jobs created. There's a multiplier that you can use. And so it's not necessarily a headcount, uh, especially on large projects. So it, it shouldn't be too onerous, as Ashley mentioned.
0: Good. Well, let's move along to the, the next question then. Uh, David asks for, and I guess I've got a couple of related questions here surrounding the dates. And I might, uh, I might have Ashley get his calendar, and his calculator out to see if he can answer these. So um, I
8: remember, I remember what my point was about the dates. Is that it's basically going to get the people that thought they were only going to get ten percent by investing into twenty twenty one. It's going to get all of them the fifteen, which is going to be great. So it would be
0: retroactive then. I, that would, yeah, absolutely.
2: Okay, it, that's a point of clarification. I don't know if it's going to be retroactive. Is it forward looking only, Catherine, or is it retroactive?
1: Well, I mean, it. So it is apl- applicable to all investors. Uh, so. You know, yes. There's, no, it's not a, it's not only for new investors. Um, but it would be, yeah. I mean, you would have to, yeah, you would have to invest before the end of 2022 in order to receive the 15%. Step yeah, up so, in- yeah. So,
0: yeah. So Tim specifically asks, we do get 15% if we invest before the end of 2022. The answer to that is yes. Then
1: right, and obviously that's uh in uh, uh, contingent on the policy passing. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so, and and uh,
0: passing as it is currently <laughs> written, also, which which could correct, change correct. over time. So, so. yeah.
1: The policy would need to pass this year. And then uh, if it were to, it, you know, and again, I know we just talked about an end of the year package. So, you know, potentially there would be a, a short window of time there to, to take, uh, to invest and receive that benefit.
0: Right. So here's a related question from David. Uh, the, 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 the OZ incentive as written um, section 1400 Z two allows you to defer your capital gain recognition until the end of 2026, right? If you've already made investments into OZ funds, would your tax due date be pushed back to 2028?
8: That's correct. Yeah. So it
0: does affect, even if you've already made that, it it would be retroactive. Okay.
8: Well, and that's why you'd be able to pick up the full 15% if you were in by, you know, in 2020.
0: Right. So that's not only for new investors then.
8: Correct. And so okay. it gives people an extra two years to, you know, to continue to make a return on their money and uh, and and also to figure out other tax strategies relative to what they're going to do with that tax bill when it comes due in now, 2028.
0: Right. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I, uh, wish, uh, I
8: wish we could get an yeah. add-on in here to lock them in at their then current capital gains rate, but, you know.
0: That's
1: uh, not part that, of the bill. <laughs> I don't think that's going to happen. That is not. Yeah. You can't uh, bind a future Congress.
0: <laughs> right, right, right. Um, Well, so another question on zones, this one's from an anonymous attendee, this person asks, uh, there are some early criticisms of opportunity zones located near universities where the students um, bring down the median income, right? Are there any changes envisioned there? Does this bill address that concern at all?
8: I think that it actually does, and I think that it specifically says that uh, it's going to apply to those if they don't hit the low income basis without the student population.
1: Yeah, so there's an exception. You know, if uh, zones have a are at or exceed the hundred percent or 130% rather of the median family income, um, there if zones that exceed that median family income also have a poverty rate, a non-student poverty rate um, of 30% or higher, then they would be accepted. Essentially, they would be allowed to continue to be zones. Um, There are, you know, there are zones that have a high median family income, but still also a high poverty rate. Um, And so, uh, you know, those those would be accepted. And again, that's based on non-student populations. So- Yeah, but it doesn't uh, necessarily, it doesn't have a direct kind of um, directly address tracks with higher student populations necessarily. So
8: it's it's not going to eliminate the zones that are that got in based upon the student population. What you're saying is, is that that's relative to if it gets eliminated based on, okay, that's, that's interesting.
1: Right.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I will say a lot of those zones were chosen because of the proximity to universities and the potential for uh, tech transfer commercialization coming out of those universities, um, so.
1: Yeah, a lot of them were very strategically chosen, so.
0: Good. Um, well, let's get to Leonard's question And Leonard asks, I understand that expected jobs created may be part of the reporting requirements, although I think we've said that they're not. Is that right?
2: I don't know. Let me go back and look. Let okay. us go back and look.
0: Well, if, if, if so, would a business that later hires some people but less than expected, would that be viewed as a success or failure by congressional representatives? I don't know if you have any insights on that question from Len, anybody.
8: Well, I think that, I you know, I, I, go ahead, go ahead, Rachel.
2: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I don't think that they're going to view, I, I think they want to see jobs created, period. Um, and I don't think a projection versus actual is going to ultimately matter, and I. So I think you're just reporting one number ultimately, and so they're not going to hold you to a projection.
8: Correct, and I think that that's the key is what you actually created, and if some of those jobs ultimately end up going away, I mean that's the that's the way of, you know, economics.
0: Excellent. Well, uh, I know we're we're running over. I do want to go. I want to see if we can go for five more minutes. We're not going to get to all the questions. We have too many, and I apologize if we don't get to your question, but we'll try to address it via email offline a little bit later today, I'll try to pass along all the questions that I can. Um, we did get a question in here from uh, Maria. Um, she says, thanks for a great session. Uh, she asks about the possibility of assigning funds to local governments for education, pre-development, et cetera. She says it's great and needed. Do you have any insights on whether this special fund will be approved? I think she's referring to the, the State and Community Dynamism Fund. Um, what, what are your thoughts on whether that fund will be approved?
1: Yeah, so I mean, it is part of it's part of the legislation. Um, but as I as I mentioned, it would need to go through the appropriations process um, in order to appropriate be appropriated that $1 billion. So um, again, that would uh, require a bit of a crystal ball. Um, but I think that's sort of a uh, that would be a future step um, once uh, hopefully this passes. Um, but I uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, that that would be a required step, though, in the process is to also go through the Appropriations Committee um, and and get that fund uh, appropriated the billion dollars that the that the legislation asked for.
0: Rachel, I, think Ashley, that, I don't know if you had anything uh, else to add. there. Go ahead. Ashley. Well, I
8: think it's going to be really interesting to see how they actually administer the dynamism fund and how they actually roll that out. And once again, I think that each one of us needs to, to, to really pay attention to that. And we need to get involved in the conversation and, uh, and and keep our finger on the pulse of how that's happening. And then that's going to allow us to give a roadmap to folks about how they can apply and how we can scale that relative to getting access to it. And so, uh, Maria, I think that that's going to be one of the important things that we all need to do is to figure out, okay, how is this getting administered, and how can we, you know, really position, you know, governments and that kind of thing that are really doing good stuff to be able to go and grab that.
2: Yeah, and to Ashley's point, I think communicating early uh, is really important, especially for folks who have been involved with opportunity zones at the ground level for a few years now. At this point, being able to communicate to your governor what is needed in the field in order to deliver high impact projects, whether that is actually pre-development, credit enhancement, whatever that is, or if there's a new initiative or an initiative you want to scale through technical assistance, capacity building money, Just communicating that now, I think, is important so that it's not an afterthought uh, should the funds get passed.
8: You know, so to that to that point. Right. So Ed Knight has this question about how he gets a, you know, how he finds how he can get his project out to a fund. You know, that should specifically be one of the things that gets dialed in relative to a process here. Right. With technical assistance and guidance and that kind of thing to facilitate those kind of interactions. And I think that we've got a real big opportunity there to do so.
0: Yeah, let's have Ashley connect with Ed uh, offline <laughs> after the after the show today. Uh, then we got time for two more questions. So question here from Clay, he asked, to the point concerning incentivizing investments into rural opportunity zones, what are the panel's thoughts on how the bill can be amended? I don't think we're going to amend the bill, but but what are your thoughts generally on providing additional tax incentives for rural zones?
2: Yeah, I think this is where that state and local dynamism fund really comes in and having governors target whether it's through, you know, potentially funding financing that helps drive investors to those places to rural communities, that's I think the quickest uh, point from A to B
1: in getting more money to rural
2: places. So, and go ahead. Oh, Catherine. sorry, I
1: was just gonna say that rural is actually um, called out as the kind of prioritized as one of the criteria for a prioritized place for the fund um, to be suballocated to. So.
8: So as part of what we're doing here and we're getting involved in the grassroots, we're going to political meetings and we're working with our re- respective uh, you know, elected officials, we need to be communicating with them the value of them getting involved at a state level relative to additional incentives. So the states that have done that have been extremely successful. So like Ohio passing an extra 10%. And if you can you know, effectively lobby for that as it relates to the rural aspects of your state, I think that that's going to be one of the things that can further set you apart and specifically getting them to tap that dynamism fund so that that way they can marshal the resources of all of the collective agencies that are out there. So get people working as a team, tap all of the available resources, bring those to bear, and then that's going to make the
0: rural deals way more attractive. Fantastic. Uh, Let's do one more question here. It's from Charles. He asks, I assume that you would like us to push others to sign this letter. Yes. Yes. Who else would you like to sign it? Municipal officials, community leaders, financial lenders, and developers? Who who should we try to get to sign this letter? Rachel, Catherine, Ashley, what are your thoughts on, on who we should reach out to? Yeah,
2: I'll turn that over to Catherine just on advocacy strategy.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if the if the congressional staffers were here today. I think what they would tell you is just hearing from a real, you know, diversity of stakeholders, you know, in the market, from community leaders, you know, from folks who are actually and actively, you know, pursuing Opportunity Zones deals in these communities, um, you know, and other, you know, other People involved, you know, in making the market work, I mean, those are all important voices um, that I think, uh, you know, congressional leadership, um, the mem- you know, the, the champions of this legislation, um, that's you know all voices that they are eager to hear from. Um, so again, not to not to speak for them directly, but um, I, I think I think I can say that um, on their behalf is that you know again hearing how this policy would impact your work. Again, the types of stories that we heard sort of in the middle of of this webinar um, about how this legislation uh, has the potential to kind of further you know make this work even more effective. Um, those are the kinds of uh, of stories that I think are important um, and for congressional, uh, leadership and champions to hear from. And that's the kind of, uh, uh... That's definitely really helpful for them to hear as well, as well as how it could potentially be even further refined. Um, again, I think we have to be uh, somewhat mindful of kind of the scope of the legislation. You know, this is uh, the the provisions that were included, you know, uh, is what has bipartisan support. Um, but if you take a look, for example, the conversation about how the, you know, the fund is, is going to be operationalized, um, if you have ideas about that, um, I, I think that, you know, the, the congressional uh, co-sponsors here are very open to additional feedback as well. So, um, you know, again, I think if they were here, they would they would say that. So I'll sort of be a um, be their be their voice on that a little bit um, if I if I can stand in. Um, but I, I do think that they're they're eager to, to hear from, um, you know, again, market stakeholders, uh, not only about, you know, support for this, but also if you have ideas for how it can be further refined to hear that as well.
8: So I'm going to round that out, Jimmy, and I'm going to say that the greatest thing about America is that everybody has a voice right so literally this is everybody that can vote right i mean that's who we need to sign the letter because th- that's who this affects and i think that that's the greatest thing about this country that we live in
0: yeah hard to disagree with that ashley
4: um,
0: well i think we'll i think we'll cut everybody loose there we went 18 minutes over sorry for uh, keeping you so long but there was a lot of great discussion here today Again, if you want to view the letter that we're going to send to Congressional Leadership, you can find that at opportunitydb.com slash letter. We also have an advocacy toolkit uh, with links to more letters that you can sign to your members of Congress. And you can find that link in the chat. I'm going to email everybody a recap of this webinar in the next day or two here, and we'll have the recording available as well. So. Uh, for Chris and and Rachel and Catherine and Ashley, I'm Jimmy Atkinson. Thanks for joining me today and and, uh, being a part of today's webinar. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone.
3: Thank you. Cheers.
0: That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.